You're listening to Outlaws and Gunslingers, the only podcast covering all of America's infamous criminals, from the Wild West to the Mafia, all the way up to the ruthless street gangs of today. Brought to you exclusively by the Creative Control Network. Here are your hosts, the Mouthy Michiganders, Bang and Dang. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Outlaws and Gunslingers. We're on to another installment of America's favorite gangsters and outlaws and gunslingers and criminals and the popos themselves. Which are also criminals. Right. Which today we'll be covering... I know uh, we said last week we'd be doing Melvin Purvis, but guess what? The story just is not that long or interesting. Spoiler alert, he killed himself mm-hmm. when, okay. uh, in like 1960. So, uh, yeah, he kills himself because, you know, depressed cop. They do. Depressed cop, suicidal cop, all that good shit. But we will be, uh, since we've done Prohibition and just finished up all of our uh, public enemy era gangsters... We're going to go through the FBI from its formation up until the uh, the last of the so-called public enemy era gangsters being killed. So this is the FBI and this is their story. <laughs> FBI was established in 1908 and designed to fight corruption and crime on a national level. However, However. when they were established, there were few federal laws or federal crimes. Yeah, there were few federal crimes, and the agency focused on violation of federal laws involving national banking, bankruptcy, naturalization, antitrust, and land fraud. Hmm. And at that time, there was hardly any systematic way of enforcing the law across the now broad landscape of America. Well, that changed, however, however, when prohibition enforcement began in 1920. I think that's why they banned alcohol, because FBI was like, dude, we don't got We need something to, to fucking do, Edgar. <laughs> do. Uh, how about we make it like, a national fucking... They're like, J. Edgar Hoover, you'll never be president, but this could be... <laughs> this could be... Uh, this is good. This could uh, put you down in infamy for the rest of your life. Right. right. When the FBI began, there were more than 100 cities with populations over 50,000. Uh, were crime growing right along with... Of course them. it would. Right. Well, in these big cities, with their many overcrowded tenements filled with the poor and disillusioned... And with all the ethnic tensions of an increasingly immigrant nation stirred in for good measure, tempers often flare. I mean, yeah. Pissed off motherfuckers. Mm-hmm. Clashes between striking workers and their factory bosses were turning increasingly violent. Like, Yeah, a lot of strikes this. and protests back in the uh, a lot early, early 1900s, you know? A lot of famous ones. Seems like it was always... The famous... Um, right, shit going on strike. GM fucking... Uh, Sit down or walk out, whatever it was. Even like the little factories, they were like, fuck this shit. Mm-hmm. Sick of it. That was before all the unions and shit. Mm-hmm. But violence was just the tip of the criminal iceberg, so they say. Corruption was also rampant nationwide, especially in local politics. Yeah, well, pff, that hasn't fucking changed, has it? <laughs> Big business also had its share of sleaze from the shoddy, even criminal conditions in meatpacking pant- plants and factories to the illegal monopolies threatening to control entire industries. Dude, early 1900s was a fucked up time in America. Literally. They're just like figuring themselves out with this new technology boom and right. industrial boom and right. shit. And they're fucking like, what are we doing? They need all kinds of fucking workers, but don't know how to fucking take care of them. Right. They're still treating them like, like fucking slaves. dirt, right? Ridiculous. Ridiculous. During these early days, American cities and towns 
were also fast becoming breeding grounds for a future generation of professional lawbreakers. They're like, damn, we could break some laws in this town. Do you think they're in a phone book? Professional. They got like, <laughs> they got like big ass ads. Professional lawbreaker. <laughs> <laughs> Operation for over 30 years. Right. Uh, fifth generation. H.W. <laughs> Hines. In Brooklyn, a nine-year-old Al Capone would soon start his life of crime. Mm-hmm. In Indianapolis, a five-year-old John Dillinger was growing up on his family farm. In mm-hmm. Chicago, a young child christened Lester Joseph Gillis would be born, who would later morph into, you guessed it, Babyface Nelson. Babyface Nelson. A vicious killer. And we all know what happened to them because we've already had their stories. Babyface Nelson killed more FBI agents than... Any man. Than Hillary Clinton? Well, I don't know about that. I got him beat. Well, by the early 20s, World War I had ended and Prohibition had begun. The war to end all wars, quote unquote, quote, was over. But a new one was just beginning on the streets of America itself. Mm. On one side was a rising tide of professional criminals made richer and bolder by Prohibition, which had turned the nation dry in 1920. So they say. So they say. Ridiculous. In one big city alone, Chicago. Estimated 1,300 gangs had spread like a deadly virus by the mid-20s, and there was no easy cure. With wallets bursting from bootlegging profits, gangs outfitted themselves with Tommy guns. Tommy guns. And operated with impunity by paying off politicians, Mm-mm. police, and anybody with fucking power. It's ridiculous. Robber gangs led by the powerful L. Scarface Capone and the hot-headed George Bugs Morin. Turn the city streets, if I didn't say that last name right, turn the city streets into a virtual war zone with gangland clashes. Mm-hmm. By 1926, there were 12,000 murders were taking place yearly across America. Shit. 12,000 moitas yearly. How many murders are in America nowadays? Oh, more than that. Has to be, right? <laughs> right. Chicago gets at least 12,000 a day. <laughs> yearly murders in america let's see what the stat is here Sixteen thousand four hundred twenty-five in 19 so that's not bad Mm-mm. from uh of 100 years they've only increased by six thousand. with while well, the population has increased more than that right huh i was actually expecting it to be about 2025 well murders that we know of there's probably another ten thousand that are missing right so that's a whole nother rabbit hole <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole one Missing persons. There's 87,000. 87,000 no. people active missing. Over 600,000 individuals go missing in the United States every year. Right. And are quickly found alive. Right. Right. So there's 87,000 active missing cases in 2019 as of the 31st of December. Over 90,000 people are missing in the U.S. at any given time. Oh, my goodness. I mean, that's about right. I mean, maybe missing for what? Eight I was going to say, right? Like, missing who's... Jeez, and you go down to pictures, and they're all fucking kids. Mm-hmm. Holy fuck, dude. Look at the map of mission, missing people reports. The South is, like, littered with it. Littered. But there's fuck. none in California. Yeah. There's two in California. Whatever. The fuck out of here. The fuck out of here. Michigan's fucking... Damn it. The UP getting some missing children or missing people. That's crazy. Look at New York. Florida. Boom. Do they not have... Do these states not have, like... Missing people There's no way. at databases because Florida and right. California have barely any. There's no fucking way. Right. Women and children. If it's a guy missing, he's usually dead or ran off. That's crazy. 90,000 people at any given time are missing in the USA. Nuts. Probably, I would assume, half of those end up dead. Most nah. Likely. <sighs> Most likely. Maybe about a quarter of which, I would assume. Mm-hmm. 
Maybe. Right. We don't know. Right. Well, on the other side was law enforcement to those gangsters, and uh, which was outgunned and ill-prepared at this point in history to take on the Surgeon National Crime Wave, right? They these were. guys these guys could not handle any Ooh. of these fucking guys. Ooh. Dealing with the bootlegging and speakeasies was challenging enough, but the Roaring Twenties also saw bank robbery, kidnapping, auto theft, gambling, drug trafficking. They all became increasingly common crimes. Mm. More often than not, local police forces were hobbled by the lack of modern tools and training. And their jurisdiction stopped abruptly at their borders. Yeah, because they're used to just everybody complying. A couple fucking idiots in town or whatever. A crime fucking spree just goes just across the country. a crime wave. And they're like, how do we do? What do we, what do, we do? We got five deputies and there's a gang of 15 out there. We're fucked. Let them have the town. Right. I mean, even cities like Chicago and Detroit. I mean, their police department was decent, but not like that. In the young bureau of investigation, things were not much better. In the early 20s, the agency was no model of efficiency and had a growing reputation for politicized investigations. Obviously. Of course. A good house cleaning was in store for the FBI. And it came at the hands of a young lawyer by the name of J. Edgar Hoover. Not ever a future president. Never. <laughs> or a vacuum. <laughs> Hoover had... <laughs> right. Or associated with the vacuum cleaner. Right. Or... Uh, <clears throat> or the other Hoover. Or the Indian or Herbert, Indiana guy, or Herbert Hoover. They weren't they weren't Hoosiers. <laughs> it was a Hoover. <laughs> they, they're not the Indiana Indi, Indiana Hoovers. <laughs> Hoovers. <laughs> uh, J. Edgar Hoover had joined the Department of Justice in 1917. Mm-hmm. Quickly risen through the ranks. 1921, he was named Assistant Director of the Bureau. Three years later, Attorney General Harlan Stone named him director. He no longer assistant. Nope. You're you the, need to find one. You're the guy. Right. However, I mean, I'll, Hoover. Hoover. Jeez. <laughs> 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 oh, Hoover would go on to serve nearly another half a century. Damn, Hoover. Another 50 years, this motherfucker, uh, as this, director. Uh, this dude's like, I don't need to be president. I'll be a director. Of the FBI, I got more power. Right. Pretty much. <laughs> At the outset, the 29-year-old Hoover was determined to reform the Bureau quickly and thoroughly to make it a model of professionalism. Well, he didn't do that because if you guys have uh, heard any of our past stories, these last five at least, uh, you can see this guy fucking sucked. He did. Um, He did so by weeding out the political hacks and incompetence, laying down a strict code of conduct for agents and instituting regular inspections of headquarters and field operations. Nice. He insisted on rigorous hiring criteria, including background checks, interviews, and physical tests for all special agent applicants. Nice. Uh, so the fucking normal shit that should have been done anyway. All right, you dumb fuck. And in January 1928, he launched the first formal training for incoming agents, a two-month course of instruction and practical exercises in Washington. Um, these guys didn't have to have fucking training prior to 1928. They're just like, hey. Nope. I want to be an agent. They're like, hey, okay, here's your gun. Here you go, bud. Here's your gun and badge. Go out and fucking shoot somebody. Yeah. Under Hoover's direction, new agents were also required to be 25 to 35 years old, preferably with experience in law or accounting. Hmm. I'm an accountant, but I'm going to be out there being an FBI agent. Right. Uh, Well, FBI did do a lot of- uh, They did a lot of- that, that kind of fraud and, shit, yeah. Bastards. When Hoover took over in 1924, the borough had about 650 employees, Damn. including 441 special agents. Damn. That's not very many, though, to cover a whole country. Right. Uh, in five years, with the rash of firings, he had just 339 special agents and less than 600 total employees. 
Okay. Compared to now, how many do you think is in the FBI? Now? Yeah. Say like fucking 20,000. 35,000 people. Hmm. But not all of them are agents. They got somewhere between thirteen and 14,000. They got 35,000 that are agents, support professionals, intelligence analysts, language specialists, scientists, hmm. information technology, uh, all that uh, shit. Uh, so uh, about 15,000 agents. So that's no, not bad. No, pretty damn good. It's not bad at all. I like it. Ah, but it was beginning to become the organized, professional, and effective force that Hoover envisioned. Was it? I don't think it was. Uh, professional, no. Organized, eh, maybe a little. Uh, effective, yes. Yeah, it was effective. They fucking murdered some people. <laughs> they fucking murdered <laughs> What important people. step in that direction came during Hoover's first year at the helm when the Bureau was given the responsibility of consolidating the nation's two major collections of fingerprint files from the federal... One at Leavenworth and its own set of state and local ones held in Chicago. Okay. Hoover also welcomed submissions from other jurisdictions and provide identification services to all law enforcement partners. Good for him. At least he's taking some steps to be like, hey, guys, we need to get our shit fucking right. Right. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he does it after 1930s, but he's, he's had a rough time in the 20s and 30s. That's a fucking yeah, we don't, we, have to, we have to figure that out. Right. This was a vital new tool for all the law enforcement. And the first major building block in Hoover's growing quest to bring the discipline of science what? to the FBI and scientific services to law enforcement nationwide. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, early wanted posters began to include fingerprints and all manners of details about criminal suspects on the run. And the borough was fast becoming a national hub for the criminal records. Okay. 1936, the agency had a total... A uh, reservoir of 100,000 fingerprints. Jeez. And by 1946, that number swelled to 100 million. Damn, they got 100 million of you motherfuckers' fingerprints. Million. How many people? How many people were oh, in the United States in 1946? Say 250. 1940. There was a, uh, roughly 141 million yeah. people in America. They had 100 million of those had fingerprints on files. That's how's that possible? Well, I think they were fingerprinting all the boring and all that. Yeah, but they do change. All the boring. Uh, your fingerprints change. That's why they... Any fingerprints never change. Yes, they do. When you're growing, that's why they have to do fingerprints. If, if anything, they would... Somebody that's never been fingerprinted by the police station, I could go. they could go out and do a crime and they wouldn't have their fingerprints on right. record. Right. But, yeah. Do they do, they do baby fingerprints? They only do, no, they just do footprints. footprints, right. 140 million population and 100 million are... Uh, what is it, all the 40 million kids? Right? Have to be, right? Or undocumented. <laughs> 100 million fingerprints by 1946. Good for them. Yeah. While well, using fingerprints to catch the guilty and free the innocent was just the beginning. The lawlessness of 1920s got the nation's attention as several independent studies in May of 1929 confirmed, confirmed. that everyone seemed, what everyone seemed to know. The law enforcement at every level needed to modernize. Hey. Oh, they did, right? They did. They're still fucking packing right. uh, gunpowder and right. shit. Rolling cigarettes. All right. Well, they still rolled cigarettes. Everybody rolled cigarettes in 1920s. When was the first pre-rolled cigarette <laughs> introduced? <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah, they've been... They, yeah, because they obviously sold pre-rolls in packs that had no filters forever. Even in the Wild West times, they were doing that. Probably. So, yeah. Oh, you said uh, we needed to modernize and cigarettes. Yeah, I get it. And 1930, modern, that's one way they needed to modernize was, <laughs> you know, you guys should really start smoking pre-rolled cigarettes, okay? Looking <laughs> a little, a little out of, out of date here. In 1930, the FBI began to collect national crime statistics that would enable authorities to understand trends and better focus resources. Another major development was made the next year when the Bureau's first technical laboratory took root. 
1932, the lab was fully operational and soon providing scientific examinations and analysis for the Bureau and its partners around the country. Hey. So now they got their own science lab doing DNA testing nice. and doing all this shit, dude. Nice. Ah, these advances came just in time mm -hmm. as the crime wave that began in the 1920s was about to reach its peak. Sure was. By the early 1930s, cities like St. Paul, Minnesota had become virtual training grounds for young crooks. Crooks. <laughs> Who, dude, I haven't heard that yeah, word. Crook. In, I haven't heard that word. Since so Richard fucking, Nixon. So fucking long. Yeah, While crooks. Hot Springs, Arkansas had turned into a safe haven and even a vacation spot. For yep, the criminal we, We've heard of Hot Springs. We need to do a fucking uh, right. show about Hot Springs, What's going dude. On with our Springs, Arkansas. Hey guys, our next story might be about Hot Springs. We haven't done a town in uh, a long time, so cool. I mean, what are you gonna do, right? Right. Well, now we get into the uh, good part where they start bringing down all these fucking bringing people. These motherfuckers in the down. Al Capone is locked away for good. Forever. In 1931, this Chicago outfit carried on fine without him and would actually experience a resurgence in the coming decades. They would. The so-called five families of the New York Mafia, oh, I can't wait till we get to there, mm. were also emerging during this period with Lucky Luciano setting up the commission to reunite the mob and Murder, Inc. to Murder carry Inc. out as carry out its hits. Prohibition was repealed in 1933, but by then the Great Depression was in full force. With honest jobs harder to come by than ever, the dishonest ones sometimes seem more attractive than standing in soup lines. Right, yeah, if you can rob somebody and get a couple hundred bucks, you're going to fucking do that probably. I would. Right? 1933, an assortment of dangerous and criminally prolific gangsters were wrecking havoc across America, especially in the Midwest. Is it reeking? Reeking, wrecking, it's all the same. Uh, and the Midwest was just getting hammered. Right, yeah, the mid Midwest was fucking... Right. Just getting hammered. <laughs> <laughs> Their names would soon be known far, far and, and wide. wide. There was John Dillinger mm -hmm. with his crooked smile. Crook with a crooked smile. Who managed to charm the press and much of America into believing he was nothing more than a harmless modern day Robin Hood. Mm -hmm. But in reality, John Dillinger and his revolving crew of gunslingers, violent thugs like Homer Van Meter, Harry Pete. Pierpont mm -hmm. and John Red Hamilton mm -hmm. were shooting up banks across America's heartland, yes, sir. stealing thousands and thousands of dollars and murdering at least one policeman. <laughs> way, at least one. Just one? <laughs> Sorry, John Dillinger. That's not sounding too... Uh, <laughs> you need to murder more. There was also Clyde Barrow and his girlfriend, Bonnie Parker, an inseparable love-struck couple who partnered at times with the Barrow brothers and others. Mm. Barrel Brothers and others right. who robbed and murdered their way across a half dozen or so states. They fucking did. They fucking did. The ruthless they fucking almost, did it. Yeah. The ruthless almost psychotic. Yeah. Babyface Nelson mm -hmm. worked with everyone from Roger the Terrible Tui 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 T O U H Y. I think it's Tui. He worked with uh Terrible Roger to El Capone, John Dillinger. This motherfucker was like yeah, we meet in the stars. He was like fucking LeBron James going from fucking right. place to place. Right. <laughs> uh, He's like, I'm taking my talents to uh, Roger the Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Gonna do it. All right, he teamed up with John Paul Chase and Fatso Negri in his later days. Okay. Nelson was a callous killer who thought nothing of murdering lawmen, gunning down three Barrow agents in the span of seven months. And there was the cunning Elvin Kerpus. And his Barker brother side. Who we have not heard from yet, but we will uh, eventually. Right. Who not only robbed banks, 
and trains, mm-hmm. but engineered two major kidnappings of rich Minnesota business executives yes, sir. in the year of 1933. Elvin Carpus. Maybe we'll do him next. I don't know. We got some stuff to do now. <laughs> well, now we got Hot Springs and Elvin Carpus and the Barker uh, gang. So, good. Good. All these criminals would become public enemies. Pretty Boy Floyd was the fourth of the fifth 1930s uh public enemies i believe elvin carpus was the last one mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, all these criminals would become public enemies actively hunted by law enforcement nationwide at first the bureau was playing only a bit part in pursuing these gangsters since few of their crimes violated federal laws that began to change in 1932 Lindbergh kidnapping which gave the bureau jurisdiction in those cases for the first time mm-hmm. and with the kansas city massacre which we covered Last episode, in June of 1933, a bloody slaughter at a chain station that wow. claimed the lives of four lawmen, including Barrow Agent with the rise in national prominence and with the rise to national prominence of John Dillinger. John Dillinger became famous. So all these all these uh, criminals are popping up and getting uh, nationwide attention. The FBI is like, we want in on this we, shit. We're the uh, national motherfuckers. Right? We want in on these motherfuckers. Mm-hmm. Using whatever federal laws it could to hang its hats on, the Barrow... Turn its full attention to catching these motherfucking gangsters. They sure did. I said, we're going to get these motherfucking gangsters. We're going to get these motherfucking gangsters. And despite some stumbles along the way, the success began to add up. By the end of 1934, most of these public enemies had been moited or captured. Mm-hmm. That's true. Bonnie and Clyde were the first to fall in May of 1934 at the hands of Texas lawmen, with the Bureau playing a small supporting role in tracking them down. In July, Melvin Purvis... And a team of agents caught up with John Dillinger, who was shot dead leaving a Chicago theater. Pretty Boy Floyd, one of the hired hands of the Kansas City Massacre, was killed in a shootout with the Bureau agents and local law enforcement on an Ohio farm in October of 1934. And Nelson died the following month after a bloody firefight with two special agents who were also killed. Hmm. Death. Damn. Damn. FBI. And (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, go listen to episodes of Dillinger and um, Nelson. Pretty Boy Floyd and Nelson, because I believe all of them have conspiracies surrounding whether or not they were actually killed by Just the like, FBI, uh, right. or in the case of Pretty Boy Floyd's killing, was he actually murdered in cold blood after he was inca- incapacitated on the ground and they just murdered him cold blood, or they, they what happened there? They didn't want to deal with this. So, yeah, so go listen to those shows to make your own opinion about those. Right, the borough caught up with the rest uh, soon enough. Agents arrested Doc Barker in January 1935, and the infamous Ma 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 Barker and her son Fred <laughs> were killed by railroad agents in Florida eight days later. Okay, Elvin Carpus, the brains of the gang, was captured in May of 1936 and ended up in Elkie. He was at he was at the Rock. He was at the Rock. Well, thanks to the successful battle against gangsters. Ganks, gangsters, <laughs> gangsters, the once unbeknown Bureau and its G-men, quote unquote, became household names and icons of popular culture in just a few years. Yeah. Along the way, Congress had given it newfound powers, too, including the ability to carry guns. What? Oh, no. They couldn't carry guns before? Ability to carry guns and make arrests. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> in July of 1935, as a capstone of his newfound identity, the organization was renamed the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. Yes, nice. it was the... Uh, B-O-I. It was, yeah, the Bureau of Investigation, and then there was another name for it, and then it was the FBI, so. Right. In the early days, they weren't allowed to carry guns? I guess not. Wow. Some crazy shit. As the decade came to a close, the FBI would find itself shifting gears once again. Once again. War was brewing in Europe. Pro-Nazi groups were becoming more and more vocal in the United States. 
claiming fascism was the answer to American woes. The gangsters, it turned out, were just a prelude to the dark days to come. Yes, they were, and we will cover all those dark days to come coming up. But we're still in the 30s, folks. We got Hot Springs, Arkansas. We got the Barkers. We got uh, uh, Elvin Carpus. Right. We got a bunch of other 30s gangsters to go through, right. but uh right. figured we might as well do something about the lawmen, which we've not really done. I mean, I guess if, since the Wild West, we've done a few on the lawmen, but they're always lawmen and then switch right. to fucking right. criminals and all that stuff. So, right. yeah. FBI. FBI Bureau investigation from its start all the way up to the... Uh, where we are now, pretty much. Up to the end. And there's no reason to cover the FBI again. Nope, never will. I don't think there's <laughs> I don't think there's another famous FBI agent. I'm sure there is. I don't think so. I'm sure there is. F FBI agents famous. Anybody from today's time, do you think? I don't think there is. Oh, we got we do have FBI agents who infiltrated the mob. Nice. Like Joe Pistone. Greatest in history, J. Edgar Hoover, <laughs> number 10. Yeah, you should be there. Joe Pistone. This dude's still going around fucking doing, uh, right. talking shit. Talking shit. <laughs> Melvin Purvis. Charles Winstead, who, uh, several high-profile cases in the 30s and 40s. The main claim to fame is being the agent most likely to have fired the shot that finally downed the notorious John Dillinger. Um, Joaquin Jack Garcia. He was an even more successful mole. He infiltrated the Gambino crime family. He looks like a fucking uh right. He, All right. We'll fuck somebody up. He was in it for twenty six years. Yeah, that motherfucker did some shit. Born in Cuba in the early fifties, the imposing six four Garza successfully played dozens of underworld roles in over a hundred different operations, with many of his things being orchestrated simultaneously. The most prominent of his performances was Jack Falcone, a supposed Sicilian thief and drug dealer. Thanks to Garcia's impressive record, he's often referred to as the FBI's greatest undercover agent. Mm. I have never heard of this guy. Oh, yeah, dude, he looks like he murdered a fucking shit ton of people. Hell did. You know he did. Look at this fucking guy. He looks his eyebrows. Mm. George Pirro, uh, he infiltrated a, uh, oh, he, he fucking interrogated Saddam Hussein. Good for him. He got all the information. Mm. Mark Felt, a.k.a. Deep Throat. Okay, mm. yeah, the uh, undercover guy that took down dick nixon mm -hmm. uh john o'neill main agent he's one of the main agents charged with investigating al-qaeda and osama in the years mm -hmm. preceding preceding the september 11th including the uss coal bombing in a horrible twist of irony he retired from the fbi to come head of security at the twin towers in new york city and was killed in 9-11 attacks Damn. america could clearly have done with more agents of his ilk that is a terrible twist of irony. Right. He investigated these guys, and then they actually right. killed them. They murdered them. Right. Clyde Tolson was J. Edgar Hoover's closest friend and protege during his years. Yeah. And was, uh, rumor has it, was his lover as well. What Whoa. the fuck? J. Edgar? All right. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> he was a right-hand man, participating in the rest of notorious public enemies like Elvin Carpus and Harry Burnett. Was constantly at the FBI. Said, blah, 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 blah. They, buried. they took vacation together <laughs> buried. and buried a few yards from each other. <laughs> All right. And Robert Lamfrey as this list uh, number one agent in the history of FBI. During the 40s and 50s, responsible for the capture of several Soviet spies involved in extracting military secrets. Well, that would be all fine and dandy if we did shows like that, but we don't do shows on the FBI we don't. that are dealing with Soviet spies and shit. So we're not the uh, outlaws, gunslingers, and spies fucking show. Right. So, uh, yeah, 
that's it for the FBI for this week's episode. We'll be back next week for most likely uh, Alvin Carpus, since uh, he's one of the last public enemies. That's yep. going to be right before we move on to Hot Springs, Arkansas, and yep. other notorious, and not even not even notorious. There's a couple uh, probably you've never heard of right. that we still have to cover throughout these 30s. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that'll be all up in the coming weeks. Weeks, months ahead. Yeah. Months, weeks, years. I don't know. I don't know, guys. Um, if you guys are uh, interested in uh, just shit talking and whatever, anything and everything, politics, sports, news, movies, music, we got the Bang and Dang Show wherever you get your podcast, The Bang and Dang Show, where we just talk fucking about anything and everything that's happening in today's world or whatever we feel like talking about. And then we also have the Monday Night Watch Along where we went back to the very first episode of Nitro. And uh, watch the main events of Nitro and Raw every week, and give us give them a score. Yep. According to how we like the match, the crowd reactions, and the extracurricular activities, meaning um, promos, beatdowns after the bell, or anything like that. Um, and then we give our own score, and we decide who truly won the Monday Night War. We're in the middle. We're actually we're at the, almost at the tail end of 1997, coming mm-hmm. up here, and coming to the we, best time ever. We are, yeah, we're coming up to the pinnacle of uh, professional wrestling. So that's the Monday Night War Chalong, wherever you get your podcast. And we'll be back next week for Elvin Carpus. We're the Mouth of Michiganders with Bang Dang.